Nice. Recording in progress. Okay, here we are. We're, we're here with uh, Brendan Graham Dempsey. Now, this is a conversation that was lined up. We first interacted, I think, just before Christmas, uh, discussing um, or the, the topic of Wagner came up. I think I've been reading Wagner's essay, Art and Revolution, which I found to be quite fucking staggering, to be honest. Um, and it's really influenced my thinking the last couple of months. And then I wrote something about it in the intellectual deep web. And then Brendan said, actually, well, I did my master's project on Nietzsche and Wagner, which is to me seems like one of the most fascinating and productive creative relationships that has kind of shaped the future of art and philosophy for the last 150 years or so. So we were like, well, yeah, fuck yeah, let's get together and talk about that. And then since then, there've been a couple of <laughs> events you could say in the cultural landscape so there was the um the game b critique that i was a part of a couple of weeks ago with raven and cadell and alexander and then there was a response to that and brendan wrote a uh, wrote an article in response to it kind of i think criticizing some of us guys and saying are we just being postmodern cynics and not really getting um the gist of the movement that perhaps Game B and metamodernism are trying to, to express. And I know perhaps it's even a mistake to conflate the two. Maybe that's something, something we can touch on again, because I think I have a tendency to kind of throw them together for convenience sake, rather than um, really being like careful to disambiguate them. But I think one of the other interesting things is that I have been deeply influenced by Nietzsche and Wagner, um, probably not I don't have the same degree of knowledge I'd expect as Brendan does, but then Brendan openly associates himself with the metamodern movement where I am, I guess, somewhat artistically turned off from it. And so we were thinking it could be quite interesting to, as we go on, start to tease into perhaps what are the differences there and why we end up thinking this way. Um, yeah, I mean, th that's what I'd say by way of an introduction. So uh, welcome, Brendan. And as I said, maybe we could start with just exploring a bit on this Nietzsche-Wagner um, thing. Like, what drew you to studying those guys? Maybe that's where to start. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks. This is exciting. And um, yeah, as you, I think you you laid that out really well. And there's sort of a, a kind of serendipitous, I think, I hope, sort of... Um, confluence here of, of related topics that could be really rich to kind of explore, um, you know, paratactically or, or kind of, you know, there's a lot of ways that these things I think kind of could potentially interweave. Um, so this is exciting. And I also just, you know, um, yeah, it's great to have this opportunity to, to dig in more to, to some of those uh, critiques and the critiques of the critiques and, uh, and then my own auto critique of being a critiquer of critiquers and uh, that sort of a thing. So anyway. Oh, you're so meta. Yeah, I've, I guess I've pigeonholed myself there. Um, so yeah, so to the to your question about what drew me to that topic, I also was deeply influenced by Nietzsche, um, very profoundly so. Um, and there was there's there's a really interesting way in which um, sort of there, there's kind of a narrative, a biographical narrative, um, where. Uh, so like Nietzsche, for example, grew up, you know, son of a pastor and um, 
and and uh, very influenced by the religious culture around him, et cetera, and then sort of has this loss of faith experience, turns to uh, philology and classics, totally renounces, you know, his religious upbringing, and then turns to notions of mythopoeia and the classical tradition and the role of art in, you know, um, not just, well, in, in the role of art in transcendence, I guess would be a good way of putting it. Um, which then leads him onto a whole, you know, philosophical project involved in even the basically the mythopoeic production of his own text, the Spoke Zarathustra, which is sort of a, an anti-Bible Bible uh, in some ways, is sort of an expression of his uh, philosophy in the sort of sacred style or the sacred idiom, you could say, and um, that's sort of this sort of arc of his narrative, um, which is which actually overlaps really, um, there's a lot of confluence with my own experience as well, having grown up in a very religious family, been very interested in religious ideas and, and ultimate concerns and whatnot, having experiences that led me basically to renounce that kind of naive, conservative religious faith, and then become a philologist and a classicist and turn to the classical tradition, um, and then turn as well to the role of art in transcendence and kind of seeing a potential substitute for religious faith in, uh, in art. <clears throat> um, so there's a lot of overlap there that just, uh, I came to actually only realize the full extent of as I was doing this project, but, um, of course with so much sort of, uh, similarity, um, you know, it kind of happened that when I was in that process of, of distancing myself from the religious upbringing, I found Nietzsche's works and, uh, they're sort of, there's like, I don't know, some people make the point that there's certain things that you find at certain ages that just can really just like, you know, work for you. You know, if you read uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye, right, at like a certain kind of adolescent period and you're like, yes, this is the best thing I've ever read. Um, there's something I don't know that just landed for me about finding Nietzsche post sort of religious crisis entering into this world of like art and transcendent looking, looking for alternative to transcendence through the classical tradition and also finding this sort of anti-religious uh, philosophy that was um, also very world affirming and life affirming and all these things that just sort of like, it just resonated very deeply. So uh, yeah, that was um, kind of my introduction to Nietzsche and his ideas and whatnot. And um Long story short, I basically, as I was, uh, you know, working through all these sorts of um, religious and philosophical issues, was I, I kind of came to a very similar conclusion that Nietzsche does in this kind of early period, birth of tragedy period, where which was the kind of moment where he and Wagner closely tied, which is that art is this potential substitute for religious transcendence. And um, so I got very interested in the nexus of art and religion. And that was what um, that was when I found uh, a master's program at Yale called Religion in the Arts. So that was the master's program that I um, that I went into and for which I then did this project that you're referring to, which was, uh, yeah, just an opportunity to explore that relationship um, because and this is just to tie a bow on the story. The program that I was in was called the, uh, the Yale Institute of um, Sacred Music, the ISM. And the whole setup of the program basically is half of the cohort is uh, are basically from the divinity school at Yale, and half of the cohort is from the music school. And they put them together, and every week we'd have a symposium and like a colloquium and, and uh, hear presentations and whatnot. And so the project over two years was to find a partner in the other program. So in my case, I was in the divinity school, and so I found a uh, 
a, a musician and to do a project together. And so I pitched my musician partner the project of, hey, let's do Nietzsche and Wagner. You know, he was an opera singer. So it was a sort of a natural mix. And um, yeah, and so I wrote that whole thing and we presented on it. It's available on YouTube. I don't know if you post this, you want to share the link, but um, so that was sort of the genesis of that particular project. And it was able to explore some of the, the roots of all the, of the relationship a lot more. Mm. It's interesting what you say about um, the kind of personal journey with it, because I had a similar experience with discovering Nietzsche and the classical tradition, not from a religious background, but actually for me, I think it was my way out of a, a secular state of being as a teenager. Like I was studying mostly science subjects and I happened to be studying Latin. And I kind of had this intuition that really there was a, a truth that I was more interested in, in Latin poetry, say, than in physics or mathematics. Um, so I decided to go and study classics without really knowing why the fuck I was doing it. It was just kind of like, well, I like playing guitar and this inspires me. And then I spent most of my undergraduate program being like, okay, this is kind of interesting, but I don't really know why the fuck I'm doing it. And it was only when discovering, I think, totally by accident, the end of the second year, I got a Kindle and I went on the like cheap library and you could get the collective works of Nietzsche for one pence or one cent in American mm -hmm. terms, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay. And I was reading that and I was like, well, this is fucking dynamite. And apparently none of my professors have either, well, initially I was like, have they not read this or are they just too scared to say it? Because it seemed to me like he was able to at least theorize and articulate perhaps a, the spirit of the ancient mind that had produced these works rather than to just analyze the textual features and the kind of historical context, say, rather than just doing typical yeah, linguistic analysis or matching things up. He was going to be able to say, well, this is Apollo. This is Dionysus. This is the spirit of a strong culture that believes in itself. And this is compared to say, what we see as a modern decadence. But anyway, to like sling it back to you a little bit, Brendan, kind of curious to wonder what, what did you tease out of the master's program then? Like what in particular were you exploring in terms of Wagner and Nietzsche? Yeah. So within that framework, right. Of sort of like a, a pairing of the aesthetic in this case, the musical and the theological um, that was sort of the, the framing of it. And so, uh, yeah, kind of what better uh, relationship could you pursue than the Nietzsche Wagner one? Um, and um, so what would I say about that? Um, there's so many ways into it. I think you, you say rightly that it, it's, it's, it's a, a, a relationship that, is sort of so pregnant with 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 like uh, historical um, significance and sort of symbolic significance when it's going on the outcomes of it. So basically, the focus of the of the consideration was the break that happens. Um, so very famously, Nietzsche and Wagner fall out, right? And uh, and that was something I didn't understand. I didn't know why. Um, it was sort of like. Is this personal? Is it philosophical? Is it aesthetic? Of course, it wound up being all of those things and more uh, theological. 
Um, and so I wanted to explore that. That was uh, sort of the, the, it's sort of like um, the dynamic I was aware of and the significance I was aware of, but I wanted to dig in and, and get the whole details of sort of what went down and why. Um, and you mentioned decadence and that was sort of the thing and that was sort of the topic of it. And that was also, I should say, another element of what drew me to the topic more generally. Um, for the previous four years before I entered the master's program I was in, I was in a, um, an artist collective in Burlington, Vermont called Aesthesia. And uh, it was it was a house in Burlington, but once you walked inside, you were basically in the 1890s. It was, it looked, I mean, there were just, you know, uh, Victrolas and old musty books. And it was uh, dedicated to the uh, aesthetic movement, basically, of that, you know, fin de siècle period. Um, and the kind of main philosopher guy of the house was just obsessed with Nietzsche, but also, you know, Emerson and, and uh, um, the various sort of aesthetic philosophers and Oscar Wilde at that period. And, um, and there was an element while I was there of coming to learn about the nature of the world, both when I was, when I was there for the four years, I, I kind of dedicated myself to a sort of reading program of trying to go through as much of the, the Western canon as I could in this period, and also studying history a lot better. And so I was trying to get a sense of what happened. I, in my undergraduate years, discovered the classic I discovered also the neoclassical sort of renaissance that happens right in the in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries and just fell in love with all that. It was like, this is a magical, beautiful period. I lived for Vienna in a time. It was just it was just like heaven on earth. It was like, this is incredible and gorgeous. What happened? Right. You go now to a modern you know, urban center or wherever, and you're just confronted by drab, you know, concrete blocks and these sorts of, um, you know, these, these, these towers and just all the aesthetics had seemed to be been sucked out of the world. And there'd just been this turn to utility and this drabness that was so, so soul sucking. And so I was beginning in that period uh, to understand and reading up a lot about modernism as an art movement and uh, and the kind of aesthetics, the cultural aesthetics, the architectural aesthetics and the principles behind it and Le Corbusier and all this stuff, right? But also postmodernism when this turned to basically the pop art and just sort of the wallowing in our flux and our you know contingency and, and wallowing in the nature of the market because there are no values and God finally was like just totally dead. So I was really starting to artic- or understand a lot better that the differences, the, what had happened, right. This shift from like, uh, you know, what we would think of as, uh, I don't know, kind of, what would you call it? Let's just call it the 19th century, but the long 19th century. And it's sort of, um, pre-World War One, you know, uh, grander that, that it, uh, uh, ultimately was able to accomplish. And then the falling off, as I perceived it, once you get into, you know, basically the post-war period, um, by means of arguably these aesthetic developments. Um, and so I was very jaded and angry about this. And actually to be perfectly honest, I was very reactionary about it. I was very, um, uh, found a lot of common cause with people who were just sort of angry at the modern world. And, you know, there was a time, uh, when, you know, people like Julius Avola probably would have been very compelling to me if I'd found them. Um, but, uh, was certainly kind of getting my share of that sort of a thing. Um, which is by the way, while I'll say too, that I'm, I'm, and this will all tie in as well to sort of the metamodern thing, which is, as you can probably start to intuit, the relationship. Um, but but the, the, the danger of reactionary thinking and how easy it is to succumb to it and, you know, how, how much of the world sort of is at the moment. Anyway, mm-hmm. I say all that because um, uh, that was sort of the, 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 the feeling I was, I was and the sensibility I was embracing during this whole period. 
And I interpreted that as decadence, right? It looked like the world had just, you know, what, what a falling off was there, you know? Um, and, uh, and so when I entered this program and I did this um, project on Nietzsche and Wagner, they're, concern, maybe even obsession was decadence, right? They, they found themselves at, at this turning point in Western culture, uh, not too long before the first world war, um, where things would really start to precipitously change. And there'd been this sense of just exhaustion and this, this decay and this sort of, um, you know, that sense that, that Nietzsche talks about of the last man, just sort of, you know, giving into comfort and convenience and that they'd lost that heroic impulse and we'd lost the art and the transcendence. And so what, what Wagner in some ways was offering, it seemed was a return to that transcendence, you know, a return to myth, uh, a revitalization or in a renaissance, which is a, you know, a new renaissance is a recurring kind of theme that we hear a lot about in all of our spaces, right? What darker otherwise, but, um, and so there's something deeply active to that, especially when you're, when you conceive of the world that you're inhabiting as being a decadent one. So, um, yeah, the, the dynamics of Nietzsche, Wagner, what they mean, what that relationship means and meant about the nature of Western, the course of Western civilization and its decadence, uh, potentially, um, and, uh, yeah, so that was sort of, that became the theme of the, of the, of the topic. Mm. I mean, I could go on and on, but I don't know if you have any, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, um, I could, I could say a little bit about what that, what the findings were, I guess, which is sort of your, your question too, where we could go in. A yeah. Totally well, I direction. mean, maybe that's, <clears throat> maybe, maybe the follow-up question is, would you conclude that either Nietzsche or Wagner got it right? Or were they themselves kind of symptomatic of the decadence or some other failing? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I mean, that's sort of, um, that's a great, that's sort of it, right? So in some ways, very explicitly, Nietzsche concludes that about Wagner, that he is a symptom of the decadence. And that's sort of his whole thing. He would later write a book called The Case of Wagner. Um, in speaking of Wagner as like a, almost a particular kind of infection, right, that, that he perceived as uh, kind of plaguing uh, decadent Europe and, and not, and not, helping it transcend its way back to culture and vibrancy and vitality, but just plunging it further into decadence. Um, and uh, so, so Nietzsche very much kind of concludes that about Wagner. And I, but I think it, the other side of that is also really important, right? Cause you say, I mean, you could ask is, is Nietzsche himself symptomatic of the, of the whole thing? And I think, I think so. I mean, in a very different way. And I think that they're, they're both, they both are an art, right? They're, they're, they're both, it's not, um, it's not as simplistic as just to say, oh yeah, Wagner was decadent and Nietzsche was, you know, pushing culture back towards, you know, Renaissance or vice versa. They, they both are symptomatic and fighting against the forces um, of their day. And uh, so in, 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 in Nietzsche's case, right. Um, you know, I see a lot of that arguably, I see a lot of that reactionary thinking even. I was just the other day, I picked up Genealogy of Morals again, right? And I'm, you know, the first couple of pages, he's going on about, oh, you know, the the, the blonde-haired beast and the Aryans, you know, and their heroicness is, have been lost to the democratic age and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, of course, people like Walter Kaufman and so many others have done so much to sort of, um, what's the word, refurbish or... Um, you know, clean up Nietzsche's image after he gets picked up by the Nazis, right? Um, and yet, it's always a very 
it's always, a, it's always there. Right. And so, you know, in a lot of footnotes, for example, of, of Walter Kaufman's, you'll see him, it's sort of like he, he protests too much, right. He's makes such an adamant case about, well, Nietzsche never really would have gone in for any of this sort of, you know, Aryan white supremacy stuff and blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that, but it's also hard not to read Nietzsche and just see how well it plays into the hand of a cultural movement, like, you know, national socialism. Um, and so in that sense, right, I think he's a symptom of his times. Uh, and uh, I think the the kind of bigger question then also becomes to what degree, what do they what do they say to our times? And that could be maybe down the line in, in a few minutes when we get into conversations about metamodernism and stuff like what the takeaways are. Um, but yeah, I, and, and maybe just to close up the, the kind of technical, you know, the sort of details of the relationship, what, what sort of ha- goes down is this, is like, um, you know, Nietzsche and Wagner become friends. Originally, it's just sort of an invitation. He comes over, um, but they just click and they both seem to realize uh, that, they, that they share a mission, right? Which is that they both understand or believe that you know, Western civilization was sort of going down this sort of long slope towards just yet yeah, the last man kind of mentality of ease and, and sort of that, this sort of um, th- th- this loss of vitality, loss of heroism, loss of intensity, and just sort of dissipating, right? They both intuited this and they both related it to the decline of Christianity in many ways. It did, that the culture had lost its mythos, right? Um, it had lost the mythological, you could call it the meta narrative. You know, losing the meta narrative is really, I think, what happens to decadent cultures, right? And uh, and there are lots of reasons that that, you know, there are ways that that happens. Um, and Nietzsche identifies a number of them in the Birth of Tragedy, which is sort of his big work from this period, um, which includes scientific, you know, overthinking of everything, turning every. He calls it kind of the Socratic kind of dissipation of mythos, right? You kind of overthink things to the point where they lose their mystery and their magic, and. Um, and so they both kind of found this, they had this diagnosis of Western civilization as being decadent in this way. And they both had a similar prognosis for a cure, which is that, well, we need a new narrative. We need a new story. We need a new mythos. And uh, they both agreed on that. And Wagner was in a position to like really bring that about. And Nietzsche interpreted that what he was doing through his music and then through the building of the Bayreuth Festival and the and the music um, hall there, that it was sort of this hub uh, that was attracting a new, you know, movement towards a revitalization and a new renaissance that was going to be rooted in mythological motifs, but it's also going to be rooted in this new art form, you know, the art of the future. Um and so Nietzsche was very excited about that. And that was sort of their, that was what united them for a period um, until as this kind of vision became more and more realized and more and more, less and less ideal and more and more actual, um, the real contours of that started to appear. And Nietzsche wound up being kind of disgusted by it. Um, he saw a lot of, you know, the the jingoistic uh, nationalism and anti-Semitism that Wagner brought into the mix and was sort of cultivating in some ways in this environment. And he thought that was pretty petty, um, you know, and, uh, and then he was also aesthetically starting to see that, that Wagner was, was bombastic. You know, he was, he needed to do the, just the maximal aesthetic move possible because people's, um, 
It's like they're, they were so deadened, right. That, that you needed the most intense kind of shock to the system to kind of get you moving again. And so rather than viewing that so much as sort of like a, a revitalizing thing, he saw it, Oh, wow, no, this is just a sign of how, how decayed we all are basically. Um, and so any kind of his art that was sort of operating in that, you know, form he saw as sort of just kind of eating the decadence. So his aesthetic shift, um, and he he just literally got sick. I mean, he was also his his physical well being was deteriorating, and he needed to he needed a break from it all, like quite literally, just to get to get done with it. Um, and uh, of course, you know, he'd been greatly influenced by Schopenhauer as well. That was another thing that they both shared and really connected on. Schopenhauer having a very pessimistic philosophy, a very negating philosophy, and so it all just sort of pushed Nietzsche radically away ultimately so that he kind of later would come to associate Wagner with decadence and he needed what he said was a life affirming philosophy. Um, and uh, so of course this finally kind of comes to a head later on when Wagner's sort of final uh, work, uh, Parsifal is sort of a return to the Christian myth and it's all about self-sacrifice and everything. And by this point, Nietzsche was just done with all that. He was like, no, this is just, you know, this is just the, the old, what he interpreted as this, you know, Christian moralistic decadence. And so, yeah, he went on his way into the mountains, as it were, um, and uh, and started seeking out how to find a more life-affirming, um, positive uh, philosophy and aesthetic, you know, correlated aesthetic, um, while Wagner was, you know, doing his project. And, uh, and yeah, in terms of, you know, what the takeaways from our, the, all that are, it's it's kind of ironically intriguing because at the time it would have looked like Wagner had, Wagner won and Nietzsche lost, right? Wagner created the, the movement and Nietzsche was just this kind of unknown philosopher who retreated into the mountains. Of course, a hundred years later, you know, the influence of Wagnerian opera is sort of limited to kind of, you know, elite social cultural circles and the influence of Nietzschean philosophy is arguably, you know, like one of the roots of postmodern philosophy. So, um, so they both have definitely continued to influence the whole thing. And again, I think one of the takeaways and one of the areas of exploration of interest for me was what, what can they tell us about today when arguably we're experiencing decadence, when we are experiencing a loss of narrative and a need for a return of mythos of some kind, you know, what are the pitfalls that they revealed in their uh, ways about going about trying to solve that problem that, that can, that can teach us something. And so that was sort of the last element of it, but we can mm. talk about it later. Like, I think, I think I mentioned earlier the essay art and revolution and what, kind of interested me about that essay of Wagner's was the way in which he tries to kind of put the classical tradition and the Christian tradition alongside each other to talk to them. Like, I think he concludes the essay by saying, we will place the two greatest teachers of mankind, Apollo, who taught him beauty and, I suppose, the supreme heights of aesthetics, and Jesus who taught him to love all men as equals. And I found it kind of fascinating because having been into Nietzsche for a while, but perhaps having been frustrated at that excess, his kind of pagan elitism, you might say, where it kind of seems like, you know, Christianity's care for the weak is just pathetic. And his, myth of the overman, which ultimately kind of just feels too individualistic 
to see Wagner actually saying, no, we can take the kind of high points of the Apollonian classical culture, but also recognize that whatever Christianity meant for the West was a um, was a profound historical step as well. And so like the uh, Wagner in that essay, I think explicitly kind of says, the Greeks were capable of incredible art, but they weren't capable of thinking incredible art for everybody. And so what my vision is, is for a kind of actually a post-Enlightenment world, even connects the Enlightenment, I think, to that Christian tradition, which I think is something that is often forgotten, is the uh, that kind of universal subject that is brought about by, I think, the Christian revelation, basically. That's as far as I can see it coming in the West. Um, and so I, I, I read that essay and then I read a couple of other uh, Wagner essays. And I was like, ah, oh, here he gets a bit into like nature romanticism and we just need to be with the spirit of the Volk and everything. And I was like, no, you're getting a bit too return to the great mother here, Wagner. And then later he goes, he kind of doubles down on his nationalism. But I thought that that art and revolution essay in particular is a really cool little nugget at presenting perhaps a conflation, as I said, of, of the ancient art and particularly the kind of tragic art, which I think, and maybe this will lead a bit further into the kind of more contemporary conversations, because I think one of the things that I think is perhaps lacking in the, in the contemporary artistic sensibility, as far as I can see it, is like a real feeling for tragedy and a feeling for the weight of it. I'm not sure if that's an invitation for me to pick up, but, um, or if you were mid thought, in which case I don't want to interrupt. No, I mean, go. If either of you have anything to say. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't want to. Yeah. I haven't, if Daniel has anything to share, I don't want to monopolize the mic here. Jump in, please. Go ahead. Um, so, yeah, I, so the role of Christianity in all this, I think, is, is really, really important uh, because, again, both Wagner and Nietzsche found themselves sort of on the end of, of Christianity. Um, you could say they're in their own liminal, you know, period, time between worlds. Um, and, uh, and there was recognized need that this thing had sort of worn its way through and something new was needed. Now, it's interesting, though, because... As you say, Wagner sort of uh, presents a greater kind of openness, it sounds like, to Christianity. And of course, he shows that in Parsifal, which is what really finally puts the nail in the coffin between Nietzsche and Wagner, which is a you know Christian story about self-sacrifice and redemption and all this stuff. And and uh and and so yeah, I think that's right. I think that I think that Wagner was sort of more integrative of of what or is trying to be of, of what had come before um and what the future might look like as a consequence. Um, with Nietzsche, it's it's sort of ambiguous, right? Because on the one hand, Nietzsche is just one of the fiercest, most rabid critics of Christianity, probably the most successful Christ, uh, critic critics of Christianity ever. Um, I mean, he goes, he doesn't just go for like, you know, oh, I can, I, here's my re refutation of the cosmological argument, right? Or here's my refutation of this. He goes to the, he gets the essence in some ways, arguably, of what the Christian ethos is all about. And then from within makes you feel like 
it's bad, right? Um, so that, like, for example, in the Antichrist, I think it's in there where he's talking about, you know, basically who is the, like, he's comparing Christ to the to the idiot. To, he doesn't, I don't think he names Dostoevsky by name, but he basically has that image in mind, right? Of this sort of like, well, what Bard would call that prepubescent kind of, you know, like, uh, what is he always talking about? Like, um, uh, 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 Boy a pillar saint. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing, right? And that he's just sort of like, you know, uh, doughy-eyed and sort of, you know, starry-eyed and, and, and doughy-eared and, and kind of just like, but then just stupid and ignorant of the nature of things and kind of, you know, winds up destroying himself. Um, and uh, there's sort of this profound naivete and, and, and immaturity there. And anyway, Nietzsche just, he dives into sort of the Christian ethos and tears it apart so that he does say that, yeah, basically, you know, he doesn't say something like, ah, the Christian development of the appreciation of pity and and the the love of one's neighbor what a wonderful thing we can take these ideas and rethink them or transform them he says loving your neighbor just because they're your neighbor and pitying someone because they're they're you know not doing well is 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 just anathema if you want to be strong and noble and like really you know his his in his mind what the ideal of sort of this life affirming uh, perspective is and so, yeah, again, from, from within, he just tears it apart and is one of just the most savage critics of Christianity for that, for his ability to do so. And yet he does also have these other elements of this thought where he'll say things like, you know, what is the purpose of ascetic ideals, right? Like they do something, they train the mind. And even if it's for a grand stupidity, they're still instilling this kind of rigor and and intensity and so there's another element of his thought in which he does see christianity as being this profound force for the cultivation and the ennobling of of the mind and the and the human subject um and and so those are sort of a little bit you know at 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 odds with each other right it's sort of like well what would have been better was this was it good that we kind of went through christianity to get where we were at or was christianity just as he calls it you know just the the revolt of the slaves and morality and just this democratization of value and uh and the you know the judaizing of of, of value and again you know he doesn't have that anti-semitism that wagner or certainly the nazis did but there is in his critique a notion that well who were the most slave morality minded race they were the jews and so it you know because they were the the most priestly and all this stuff so it opens itself to that sort of anti-semitic um you know reading which nietzsche scholars have been you know fighting for for a long time uh but anyway i just make that point because i think in nietzsche's thought yeah there's a there's an ambivalence about the significance of the christian tradition and this does tie in very directly to where I see some of the differences in some of these communities of thought between say metamodernism or dark Renaissance, because, um, so a couple things, let me just terminologically and whatnot. One is yes, I definitely don't conflate metamodernism and game B. I see, uh, I see them as being, I, I mean, since Joe Lightfoot coined the term, the liminal web, I sort of thinking about these things as sort of an ecology or a family, you know, of different communities that are related and some, there's a lot of overlap in some and not others and that sort of thing. So I see game B as being adjacent to the metamodern conversation, but certainly a lot of synergy there. Um, my, I come to the game B conversation via metamodernism. So I'm so more of a part, uh, an observer of that discourse than a participant in it. Um, but 
one of the shared, I think, the reason why sort of the meta modernist take on that game B video was so positive compared to you know uh, the, the the negative critiques of it is I think that they both share a sort of ideal uh, idealistic aspirational um, view uh, that is sort of rooted in a in a sensibility around let's make the best of things, let's try to improve things, let's let's better things. I think there's also a sense that we are co-creators of the world and that nothing is fixed necessarily, but we are we are those who are sort of willing to come to the table to introduce ideas and create new systems and 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 new imaginaries are the people who will sort of uh, be directing the future, you know. And so there's a shared understanding that well, who's who is shaping those narratives? So. This, of course, is then ties directly into all of this. If you do buy a notion that sort of our civilization is in decline, it's decadent, it's it, it's post narrative, it's needing a new narrative. It's if it's going to sort of take a new direction and be become revitalized in some ways. I think that that game B initiation video was sort of I interpreted it through the lens of mythopoeia. You know, it is a story that is meant to be taken as a kind of modern myth, and the whole aesthetics of it were sort of in that register. And 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 to the degree that it's trying to do that, in order to take us from where we're at, which you know, in their in their mythos is sort of game A, and bring us to game B, right? Then uh, yeah, like here's sort of like revving the, you know, uh, I don't know, um, inspiring people, uh, providing a sort of like basic kind of simplistic map of like, well, what are the dynamics here? And what are we after? And what now? Okay. So, so there's, there's, there's that similarity there between a sort of metamodern sensibility and the game B sensibility and the openness to new kind of mythopoeic forms that can try to articulate this sort of thing. Um, now, so one of the things though about metamodernism that I intuitively just grokked right away, which it, in this, this kind of, it gets, I think very much from an infusion from sort of integral thinking and whatnot, is that if you go back to what I was saying earlier, right, um, about the narratives that I experienced, uh, religious faith that led to, you know, disillusionment turned to classics and, and then a kind of a turn to a sort of a rationalist thinking and all this stuff leading to uh, a turn to aesthetics that led to, you know, sort of philosophy, et cetera. And the fact that Nietzsche followed that same kind of basic art was sort of really compelling, but it's the, it's also the basic kind of art that our, our culture has basically taken, you know, in the past 500 years, right? The, the dissolution of the traditional narrative, that mythos and that narrative dying out, and then the turn to rational, you know, kind of uh, empirical thought and that mythos taking up and a new narrative there, but then that really not kind of panning out the turn towards aesthetics and subjectivity um, and, and so on. That basically the point being that, that there are these progressions of meta memes that people can experience both individually, but that arguably our civilization has also kind of gone through in some capacity. Um, lots of nuances that could be made about that, but I think the basic idea is a very compelling one. Now, once you get past postmodernism, which um, has sort of taken this Nietzschean turn, right? That there are no facts, there's only perspectives um, and basically really intuited the full depths of God is dead, right? There is no ultimate perspective arbitrating what is ultimately true, that we're all just perspectives relating to perspectives. And basically really taking that whole thing to heart um, and having gone through the process of a 
a the way that 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 Nietzsche does, I think, return us to the body, return us to materiality, you know, almost to kind of shove our faces in it, right? Um, and the the kind of total rejection of of transcendent ideals uh, is sort of just so core to his philosophy and becomes very core to postmodern philosophy. But here's the thing. Now, without making too broad a you know comparison here, Nietzsche went insane and spent the last 10 years of his life in a catatonic state. Um, and, and if you want to view that symbolically or metaphorically, um, which is always a dangerous thing to do with biography, but let's just say it. Um, so let me instead kind of use that as a metaphor for my own experience with these sorts of things. Living in that world, right, of God is dead, there aren't really any transcendent ideals of any real quality or, or, or reality. Um, meaning is something that's sort of tenuous and sort of always prone to be deconstructed. Everything kind of can be understood uh, by relating them back to our basic, like, like our psychological impulses rather than any kind of aspirational ideal, et cetera, et cetera. Phenomenologically, that puts you in kind of a dark place. Um, and, and just as if you want to kind of think about the kind of madness uh, that the aperspectival madness, if you want to call it that, or or just madness in general that Nietzsche experienced, but also you could make the comparison that a postmodern decadent society is wallowing in that dynamic of oh, as soon as you say something, you can deconstruct it, you can you can undermine it by doing so 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 and so. You can you know uh, all ideals are just you know fanciful illusions that we place before ourselves in order to hide our our brutish interior you know darker impulses and this sort of a narrative right. Um, that's what we've been swimming in for the past thirty years through in this sort of postmodern takeover of these ideas and the culture and that's the decadent culture that we're responding to. So what metamodernism, I think, is largely about is saying, okay, all this might be true in a way, but it's not, there's still another step to make here. Because if we, if we go this route, it gets us here. It's this cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. Um, what if we take this critical awareness, but we also marry it to this aspirational quality that we might know that we're probably doomed to fail, but we might as well try because what else are we going to do? Um, we also don't really have a choice, right? If life is going to continue, we can't just kind of be clever and sort of cynical all the time about things. We actually have to commit to things and be earnest and care about them and like, you know, care about each other and like be, try to be better people. Right. And it all starts to sound kind of, uh, kind of wishy-washy, kind of just sort of like, well, that's all passe, right? That's all. But that's the metamodern sensibility that gets taken up and sort of valorized. It's like, as David Foster Wallace said, the next rebels are going to be people who, you know, are cool because they care. They're, they're, they risk the, the, the sidearm jab and the rolled eyes and the sigh, right? But they don't care about that because they have ideals and they're aspiring and they're trying. So point is in all this, when I saw something like the Game B video, I view it through that lens of, of course, this is simple, maybe childishly so. Of course, it's a, a reduction to kind of a, almost a kind of binary of, uh, oh, we were in a bad place and we're trying to get to a good place and all this sort of stuff. Yes, it's a mythic register, it's a, but it's an attempt. And so my critique, such as it was, is sort of saying like, are we really going to go back to this, 
this way of being that's just always trying to undermine and critique things, especially those things that are trying to make the world better here at the, at the end of all things, right? Like who does that? And when I see that also that mentality married to a nastiness and a cruelness and a bitterness, it just reminds me of the whole postmodern thing that got us in these problems to begin with. So that was the nature of that article that I wrote an imperfect one and also not great because it's, you, you only get so far critiquing critiquers, right? I mean, you're just, then you're, then you're playing the game of critique. And so I was sick and I had some time to think about all this and kind of regain recoup. And I thought, you know what? And, and through conversations too, with others that kind of helped me get back to the sense of if we're going to do something, it's just going to be because the people who are trying are trying their best and they're going to make things and people are going to be excited. It's going to be revitalizing. It's going to be energizing. And that's, what's going to change things. And so it's not worth wasting time trying to critique criticism. Um, and you just kind of wind up falling into another morass. So yeah, that'd be sort of my way of trying to relate all the stuff that we've been talking about to some of these ideas. All right. Let me, let me jump in here for a bit. And, uh, sort of throw something for a reflection for both of you. Because uh, I know Owen's going to bust my balls anyway about this. Uh, and I assume uh, it's also going to sort of disagree in many ways with what you're saying. So I depart from a similar standpoint, right? But I feel like the framing of this game uh, as, as you're framing it and the sort of traditional metamodern framing of it is rather off, if anything, we haven't even begun to create new values. So I feel like myth and narrative design require, and that's sort of my lesson that I draw from Nietzsche value creation. But I think this implies risking creativity to a scale that we are not prepared to accept. That one goes mad, or rather the fear of madness and, and finding out these new values is reserved for those who stay this side of the river sticks, or rather, the fear of those who fear drowning in it. So if we're going to like decide the new values for the new narrative, it's not going to be decided by committee. It's not going to be decided by people wagging fingers telling us to be nice, but it's going to be decided by those who do not fear madness and in a way have this radical uncovering of new spaces between worlds. But that radical uncovering is ridden with all of the risks that so many people try hard and so hard and so hard to avoid. Um, it's a tragic solitude to invent the values of a new world. So when one says, let us be better people, I'm done with Christianity. That was the lesson of Nietzsche. Um, it's also not about postmodern blaséness. It's rather that if metamodern exists, if metamodernity exists, or if metamodern art exists today, or rather if it will exist in the next 20 years, it's not gonna be because it intends to be good, but rather because it risks, it has the potential to risk being the opposite of that. It needs to have that power. That is the flirt with the blonde beast of prey. That is the flirt with disaster. That is the precondition for us to be able to formulate these things. Now, are we going to go out there and repeat 9-11 simply because some say that it was a great art piece? Of course not. But we need to be ready to understand uh, aesthetically, theoretically, in our souls. We need to risk the madness of, of, of assuming that, well, the breadth of existence is a little bit too large for us to simply want to, by addition, frame it within a very limited um, 
set of values and say, no, this very limited set of values is are, are the good values that we're pursuing. That's just more modernism. But with fancier words, that's the critique that I've made many I mean, for meta-modernity um, to many close friends that I have in that group. Uh, and, and what I bring to, to, to that critique is really sort of, and, and I bring this to Owen as well, and he sometimes chastises me and I feel like correctly because I can sometimes be a little bit extreme in that, but I certainly do feel that we have not been postmodern enough. We haven't been meta-modern enough. If we are going to create values, we need to really like risk taking this bit of thinking to its extreme. Now, what does that mean then to create radical new values? It means creating new people. It means creating new systems. Will that risk incredible disasters? I hope it does because otherwise we're not really risking and we're not creating and we're going to stifle us by committee all the way to the gulag, which is what's going to happen unless there is some level of um, a risk to it. Like I'm always reminded of of Gerard and how he said that civilization is basically fueled by blood. I know I'm kind of being creatively free with him here, um, but the fact of the matter is that those who really found new eras are very much aware that at the, at the core of a new era is a disaster. And then the values that come as the prohibition for that disaster. It comes as no surprise to me, Brendan, that you have to frame Nietzsche and you have to make a caveat because of the Nazis. We know that that's the moral, that's the moral sort of the traditional moral. And, and by no means I'm, I'm saying that that's, that's such an American moral thing to do when one speaks of Nietzsche. That is not the lesson of Nietzsche. When we speak about Nietzsche, we need to consider like, uh, 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 the radicality of Zarathustra. We need to, to consider the absolute madness that he went through. Nietzsche was a prophet and an artist in many ways. So, you know, are we going to really lose ourselves in the footnotes and say, maybe, well, he didn't really mean that. No, that's not the whole point. The point is um, we're not even beginning to understand the depth of the risk that we need to go through with our thought, with our thought, and hopefully with our thought first so that we prevent some, some other risks. But the depth of that risk that, that needs to, to be at the center of the debate, at the center of ourselves and our subjectivity. Um, and I feel like this is somehow, like, this is where some people claim that, you know, many of these movements lack, lack a, a, have a total lack of awareness of sex and death and violence, precisely because at the, but before sex and death and violence is, is absolute nihilism, like an absolute nihilism with which one each of us has to contend with risk going mad in order to afterwards risk being affirmatively nihilistic and create and really create without uh, being encumbered by uh, what discourse a b and c find to be the good values with which one should create if one is going to create one creates radically uh, one risks destroying one risks um, you know revising whole world orders um, and the, the great tragedy of, of the great transitions that we're going to go through is that that destruction will be the precondition for the new era. Uh, and so meta-modernity, in my view, uh, as it emerges, is going to have a very large dark streak, not because I'm a fan of the dark Renaissance, but, but because I foresee the disaster that we are today un unable to think that is a disaster of technology, of AI, and what it implies for subjectivity. So that's like, I want to throw this to both of you and see what you guys think, because I know, I know. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Should I go first or Owen, do you want to go? Okay. Um, you go, I got to jump out for a sec. I think someone's knocked on my door. So oh, okay. Um, 
So one, I, I admire the, the passion and the zeal and the kind of romantic, you know, fury with which you speak. It's, it's, it's uh, intoxicating, right? It has that anyone familiar with, uh, with Nietzsche and the way that he writes it, it has that, um, that tenor to it, right? It's, uh, you know, we're, we're dancing by abysses and, and, uh, you know, you know, we're posthumous men and, and, and we must risk, you know, yeah, destruction in order to create and all these things. And it sounds very, um, heroic, right? And I think that that is an element of what is, what is desired as, as, as always happens in decadent periods, right? I mean, you saw the same thing leading up to World War One. It was like people were eager for that war because they thought it was going to be a great opportunity to be heroic. And of course it wasn't, it was more the kind of devastation that, that you alluded to with the, the, the tragedy of subjectivity that happens with things like AI and whatnot. So I think one, yes, let's, let's name that, be aware of that desire and that need for a kind of heroic transformation, hero, heroic revolution, um, which always requires some form of destruction, right. In order to create new things. I, I buy that. Um, and maybe even just to go down the list uh, uh, to say what I do agree with what you said, I, I will also very much agree with the idea that wherever we're headed is going to include a great amount of darkness and, and suffering, uh, loss. Um, in my own work, which I think tries to be, well, it is very much informed by a lot more of this, maybe more so than some of the things that like Game B is putting out. Um, there's a moment, for example, in, uh, in the God poem where basically after the, after the transformation is sort of underway or has been kind of has, has occurred, um, it's brought down the entire edifice of the beast that was holding up the world that was, that was going on. And, and the protagonist looks out and sees this wasteland of billions of deaths. And, uh, he turns to Faust and he's like, did, did we do this? And, uh, you know, Faust has to say, well, we didn't. We didn't create the conditions such that it needed to happen. So in that way, we can't necessarily be blamed for it. And yet we also have to take responsibility for the fact that if you're going to overthrow uh, a, a decadent and a ruined system causing the suffering of billions of sentient life forms, that will have vast consequences. And whether or not that's even going to be a volitional act or whether the system winds up collapsing under its own weight and causes that sort of devastation. The point is, I think it's very fair and should be embraced open-eyed going in to the next 50 years that these sorts of travesties, um, which probably isn't the right word, but catastrophes or, or whatever word you want to use, ruinations, um, are sort of on the horizon. And maybe there's a, a way in which then looking at sort of a cute 8-bit pixelated, you know, mythological scene of we got to get to game from game A to game B seems kind of just uh, kind of ridiculous by comparison to that. And so to the degree that all that is there, I would say, yes, we should own all that. And the future of our art that's really trying to grapple with these profound issues needs to own up to all that. Where I think I would differ, though, is there's a difference between saying that something's inevitable and saying that it's good or saying that it should be embraced. Um, and I, I know that that's not quite either what you're saying, but just the notion that 
uh, that destruction and 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 ruin is sort of a reality. Apart, I mean, to not even begin to get into some of the things about the you know psychoanalytical death and aggression and sex and all this stuff that that, that comes out in these conversations as well. Um, there's a difference between sort of owning that and knowing about it and trying to incorporate and integrate those realities and sort of embracing them. And I think that the creation of values that you're referring to raises some really important questions. What does it mean to creator, right? I think that there's a sense in Nietzsche that, um, right, if you're going from a system of sort of moralism and pity and uh, compassion, and you're trying to affirm a, a new set of, you know, tables of values that are about strength and self-affirmation, et cetera, that that disparity is going to look monstrous to people. Now, the question, though, and Zarathustra even makes this point, is that he doesn't want to just be followed. He wants other people to make other values, different values, their own values, right? So what I would say is that I don't think that the value creation, such that it differs from the past uh, or that it's engaged with in a kind of you know, affirm affirmational, nihilistic, creative way, it doesn't need to be cruel and mean in order to kind of signal that it's a new value system, right? It doesn't need to be shockingly different and 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 like uh, antagonistic and and a kind of bipolar opposite of of the former values in order to have been come to through a genuine process of value construction. Um, and I think that it's very possible, and I would posit that the sort of metamodern sensibility is a, is an example of this that things that might have been embraced historically in a naive sense let's say, uh, being earnest and idealistic, can also be come to post-nihilistic relativization and returned in a way that is, oh, no, I'm, all, I'm still aspirational and idealistic, but in a way that's tempered and transfigured by the sort of baptism through fire of postmodern critique and, and the sort of nihilistic awareness that these are values that I affirm rather than being fixed and given, et cetera, et cetera. So my point just being that this sort of rousing anthem called to be, you know, creative destructors and, and this sort of a thing um, is, is, a, is one version of what that can look like. And there are other versions, I would argue. Uh, that, I guess that would be my, my first pass at, at some answer to that. I get it. I get it. And it's a fair point. It's a fair point. Um, I just want to switch a couple of things there. Um, it's like, for me, the, maybe the dialectical move here that metamodernism hasn't done and that I feel I'm trying to articulate in many ways is that is to acknowledge that it is actually the unconscious that creates. You said the word travesty and I love that. Travesty uh, or, or travesty sometimes is slang for trans person or used to be or for drag queen. There's this, there's this level of what I'm trying to allude to is not uh, gratuitous creative destruction, which is what I think I need to articulate myself better because that's the first thing that people go to. But that maybe is, a, is not so much a failure of my articulation and more a failure of the humanist, democratic, sort of modern tendency to overvalue human consciousness in the process. Maybe metamodernism is dead modernism, and this is a great bit of news. Uh, I don't mean this in the, in the least destructive or dark way, but rather that it is actually the unconscious that creates. There's a sort of acknowledgement of the death drive of humanity as embodied in technology and all of these geopolitical currents that are clashing against each other. 
which is the genesis for this video and for these well-intentioned people who I deeply respect. But uh, to fear meanness or madness is lack of faith in art as the mouth of the unconscious. That's why art is reserved for the few and why it's going to be deeply undemocratic in that sense. Um, so maybe that's my, my critique of like my, my deepest sort of antagonist, not the thing that annoys me the most is this, um, <clears throat> I, what I saw, what I see sometimes and, and, and can be in metamodernism is the same thing that I see when working with large corporations is sort of an overvaluement of decision by committee, of bureaucracy, of process over flair. And sometimes we need to be ready to acknowledge that the flair that is going to invent new wages doesn't have to be mean or, or, or mad, it may very well be, like all genius uh, sort of movements and revolutions, um, but that, 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 that capacity is a capacity for letting the unconscious speak through vessels, through us, through our technologies, through our relationship with technologies. And sometimes maybe we just need to drop that modern postmodern vice of steering uh, of oversteering, of overmanagement. Well, the next age can be this and this, but it can't be that, that, and that, because that's a little bit too Nazi, and it can't be... <laughs> go mad or go home. That would be sort of my... Um, because through that madness, then we are sort of empty enough for the formulation of novellas to truly come to be. I mean, even Zarathustra had to go to the mountains. I think that's what he was alluding to, but correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I would say... Well, first of all, that makes a great T-shirt, go mad or go home. Um, so you could you could think about some merch there. Um, no, I, I think what you're saying is uh, there's there's a, a, an element that I deeply resonate with. And I, I will agree to to some of the basic kind of thrust to that. One thing I would offer as a constructive idea here, and I have offered in the book called Building the Cathedral, is is a Jungian active imagination mythopoeia, right? Um, to the degree that the consciousness, the unconscious creates, and we're in need of mythos and new narratives, um, and the degree, you know, to the degree that mythos stems from and emerges from sort of the unconscious mind, as Jung would have would have argued, I think that um, there is a uh, a set of practices that could be incredibly salutary and and uh, edifying here, where people do return to. Unconscious. I mean, um, Will Franks just uh, not too long ago had a piece about what he calls imaginal religion, right? The 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 turning to the unconscious for new images and new symbols from which to construct um, a new system, a new a new way of thinking. Um, so I, I that's very much the direction that I go in is sort of saying now. Do I buy the entirety of sort of a Jungian model, et cetera, et cetera? No. And so that book is written under a pseudonym, but I think it's a worthwhile sort of general way of thinking about things, which is there is in people this deep source of fruition of, of symbolic creation, mythopoeic, the mythopoeic imagination, as Jung called it. And we can get in touch with that. And we need to right now. And I think you're right, too. I think that we don't need another committee or another Oh, won't this look so look so pleasant? Let's just make sure we have all the our old ducks in a row, and then you know we'll we'll live in utopia. I, for me, I don't very much see it through that lens at all. I think that this whole process is messy. It's dialectic. It's um, 
and it's artistic where it should be. And I'm in the process of working on some of this myself, but what we need is co-creative collaborative people coming together, sharing their myths and their symbols and collectively reconstructing a new mythopoeic system for the future and articulating yeah. a new set of values. So, yeah. I mean, maybe if I can just jump in here, perhaps where I become frustrated with what I see coming out of metamodernism and, I'll admit that I haven't delved super deeply into it, but it's like a perhaps a, a naivety at the level of the symbolism and the, the, the level of the mythology. And I think that was very clear, say, in that Game B video as well. And I know that wasn't Metamodern produced, but it resonated. Um, I mean, like if you, I think that earlier, Brendan, you were talking about Metamodernism as having this sense of people being nice and cool as caring. And I think there's a sense in which we have to see that as inheriting perhaps the, the Christian charity and the love for the neighbor, the love for the stranger, even if we leave it. And of course, it's not only Christianity that produces these things, but look, all of the great religions across culturally that have taught vast swathes of people to live together have some level of deep negativity baked into them, whether it is Christ on the cross or it's the noble truth that life is suffering and you're basically stuck in this loop or that it's, I don't know, the Bhagavad Gita and you're basically on a battlefield and you have to fight, but fighting itself is, and, and killing and dying is part of the spiritual act or, I don't know, Asher and Druge, the fight, the, the battle between the force of truth and civilization versus the force of barbarism and so forth. There's always this sense of having to confront some horror and building that into the symbolic system, building that into the mythological worldview, which seems absent from what I've seen from these movements. And that was the kind of basis for me of the critique of the Game B video. This is where I say there's a kind of incapability of properly thinking the tragic, which is something I mentioned earlier. There's something else that you touched on, Brendan. You were talking about World War One and how people kind of bang the drum for it. But there's a great essay by Freud, I think, called Reflections on the War or something that came out just before World War One, And he's basically saying the horrible thing is not how everyone's beating the drum for war. It's the fact that a year ago, everybody thought we were so polite and we were living in this incredibly refined civilization where we were, we'd finally overcome the medieval barbarism and all of that shit. And what was bubbling away under the surface was this violence that was about to just drench all of Europe in blood and metal. And so I think the core of perhaps the the philosophy that say the dark Renaissance is trying to, to imagine is to say, we have to build this negativity into the myth-making processes, the culture-making processes from the beginning. And in a sense, I see it as it's not postmodern in that sense. If the caricature of postmodernism is all values are relative and everything is kind of subjectively conditioned and so on. I think the point, certainly I'm pretty sure that Cadell would say, and I think Cadell and Bard are probably driving the philosophical core of the dark Renaissance is that no, there is a truth. It's like the, the abyss at the big, at the core of the subject is not relative. There is a kind of a negativity there and maybe to throw in the Gerard as well. It seems that anthropologically, whatever culture, 
systems we build on top of, say, our dynamics of violence and sexuality. The violence and the sexuality is still there. So it's not to kind of relativize. I think this is where, for example, the woke brigade pick up postmodernism and go into this, like, well, anybody can be anything. And if you're not allowed to be anything, then you're being oppressed because they're unwilling to properly think the dynamics of power and the dynamics of sex and how we can't escape them. And so what I would put to say the metamodernism mythopoesis is it needs to go down to that layer of whatever Christ on the cross is, whatever life is suffering is, whatever the battlefield where you have to fight and die is, in order to be capable of really speaking and symbolizing whatever time we're moving into. Yeah. So now let me just throw this out there as an idea. So a couple things. One is, I think you're right. And I think that the characterization, um, even very much that I explicitly threw around as, as trying to uh, sort of paint the dark renaissances in a sort of postmodern cynics, I agree. It's probably not the best one. Uh, there are certain kinds of uh, flares and, and kind of a sensibility that I think overlaps there, but I think philosophically you're right. But I would actually say um, that it's more, okay. So so here's just kind of a thing that comes from the integral world, which I actually think can be very helpful. And it's that pre-trans distinction, right? So A, B, and C. If A is a, you know, let's say, uh, well, let's just say that, yeah, A is traditional, let's say, myth and and sort of the medieval way of thinking of the world, right? B is, um, is sort of this modern rationalistic anti-religious, you know, kind of sensibility. Um, and then C is, let's say, a postmodern, you know, post-rational sort of way of thinking about things, um, it's very easy to conflate what's on either side of these things often. Um, they often kind of regress towards each other um, in a way that like, uh, so once you're after rationalism, right? If you start saying things like, well, you know, rationalism isn't all it's cracked up to be. And what about all these other things about feeling, et cetera, et cetera. Then the rationalists are going to look at you and say, oh, you're just one of those, you know, traditionalists, you haven't even reached rationalism yet. And that's why you're attacking it. When in fact, you can actually be beyond it, right? So what, what is trans is appearing as pre. That's just sort of a basic way of saying that. Um, and there, this happens all, all the time, um, such that, um, that, yeah, in the sequence of sort of development, uh, when you, and maybe that you could even think of this as kind of a Hegelian sense, like if you transcend something and you include this former thing, the degree that you're transcending it can appear from the previous stage as just a regression um, because you're sort of not in that thing anymore. So you're negating it, right? But you're actually negating by means of going forward rather than by regression. So progress mm -hmm. and regress can often be confused and conflated. Now, here's a thought that was coming to me as, again, I was kind of flipping through some more Nietzsche the other day. So if you kind of take this idea that what happens, right? Well, and this is sort of Nietzsche's idea about, about what happens with the revolt of, of, of the slave morality, right? Is that you had originally good and bad as coming from the nobles, the no, no, noble aristocracy saying, hey, I like a thing. That means it's good. And look at all these, you know, gross you know, unpowerful people who can't affirm themselves, like they're bad, right? And so you have kind of a good bad distinction. And when you think about like the Homeric kind of, you know, noble ideals of, of glory and honor and that sort of a thing and the, the whole, uh, you know, sort of the, yeah, uh, what is it? The, the Kaloi Kagathoi, the, the good and the beautiful versus the Hoi Poloi, the everyone else, right? That's sort of 
kind of idea A that Nietzsche as a classicist kind of really digs into and is like, yes, wow, look at this whole thing, right? He's sick of this, this resentment morality that he's seeing everywhere. So he looks around and he sees the rise of Christianity as basically being the revolt of the slaves against the nobles, right? They look at those good and, and you know, those the good people and their distinction of good and bad, and the powerful, and then there's everyone else. And then in their way of thinking about it, they're like, well, we want, you know, we're, we're jealous, we're envious, we're resentful of these people. They're actually evil. And what is good is this other thing of like pity and compassion and, you know, helping the poor and that sort of thing. Right. And of course, in Nietzsche's psychological understanding, well, isn't that very convenient for them? And of course, this is the kind of basic narrative, right? Of the genealogy of morals is sort of like, where did we get good and evil? Where do we get moralism and morality and all this, right? It comes from the, yeah, this committeeification, the democratization, the liberalization, the, you know, again, in his mind, sort of the, the Judaization, the priestlyization of of this sort of code that had been about morale, uh, had been about nobility, now becomes about morals, right? In a way of basically taking down the powerful who used to be able to just assert what's good and bad by means of this code that you're able to actually overpower them. Okay, so that's a kind of two cent version of his thesis, right? Now, arguably, now historically, right? This actually, you can look at this happen in the axial age, right? You go from a period of arist aristocracy and nobility you know, whether it's the Rig Vedas and the Brahmins and this sort of a thing, um, or, you know, and, and you go into these new, where the, the seed of the world religions comes from and the prophet, you know, prophetic era. And, uh, you know, it's not about ritual sacrifice anymore. It's about, it's about morality. It's about how we treat other people and caring for the widow and the orphan and that sort of thing. And this whole thing plays out kind of cross-culturally in multiple areas. Now, in a meta-modern interpretation of this, which draws upon integral theory and things like spiral dynamics, or really just to simplistically developmental theory, right? Um, what's happening here is a shift of, of, of value means um, away from what in kind of these, what you might call a kind of, uh, well, in the spiral dynamics, which is ridiculous sometimes and probably not the best thing to be taken seriously if you're going to bandy that stuff about, but it's sort of the easiest way of talking about it. You're kind of moving from a, a red value code to a blue cult, uh, cultural code, or you're moving from what Hansi calls uh, Faustianism to post-Faustianism. And so no longer is it might makes right. It's There's a duty and there's a role and there's a moral here, okay? Now, here's the point I wanted to make. Nietzsche looks at this and he sees decline because he's steeped in this decadent moralistic culture that's just, it's actually moved even beyond this sort of, um, it's, it's, it's moved beyond traditional uh, religious, religion, right? I mean, the death of God and everything. And it's moved into modernity. It's moved into a set of values that doesn't even really even hold to these older moral codes anymore. And yet it says it does. And so in some ways, it's just what, what Bard would call naive nihilism, right? It doesn't even really adhere to these ideals. And so Nietzsche sees this hypocritical, moralistic culture. And he compares that to the nobility and the, the strength and the vigor of his classical ideals. And he sees decline. Now, that's fine. You can see it that way. But you can also see this as a sort of uh, developmental progression, arguably. And because what you get from this movement that happens is then you get individualistic values, uh, which are the modern values, and then you get relativistic values, which are postmodern values, and then you get metamodernistic values, which are integrative and systematic, et cetera. 
So this whole narrative can actually also, in a broader scheme, be seen progressively and developmentally as leading to a better place. Nietzsche looks at it and sees decline. And his answer is, we need to go back to the, to the red, noble, aristocratic, no good, no evil, just good and bad. Like that's where things were, were life-affirming, right? So arguably, you could say that Nietzsche in this way takes a sort of reaction, reactionary um, answer to this. And I think that this is something that you see that's happening all over the place right now is that this is a common response to a cultural evolution that people see this, this shift towards morality and, and there's a case to be made that this is sort of a, this is a downward trajectory and Nietzsche is the, the best diag diagnostician of that sort of phenomenon. Now, my point in all this is just to say that I think one way you could even conceive of this sort of metamodern dark Renaissance potential clash, as I interpret it, is that because metamodernity and metamodernism has, at least in some formulations, a developmental thrust to it, it sees a, a meta-narrative arc of history as development, as moving forward, as moving towards greater expansiveness and, and, and openness. I don't think, and in fact, I know it's not the case, for example, in the conversations with Bard, for example, that there's any of that in this sort of dark Renaissance context. There's much more a sense that as you're saying, we've got these deep, dark impulses and those never go away. And that it seems then that just being nice is sort of a veneer that covers the, the true core, which is dark and full of, of violent impulses and things. But if you have a developmental framework, it doesn't necessarily need to be that way, right? You can see that um, when you build, when you stack things one on top of the other, just that, that it's a false reduction would be the point, right? Like, um, just saying, because I have a gastrointestinal tract, you know, that ultimately I'm all just about shit, you know, like that's sort of a reduction. It's sort of like, well, I need one of those, but I also have a heart and I have a mind. And it's sort of like, you could start to think of these things in evaluative stacks such that, oh yeah, well, you know, I have a kind of constitutive animal nature that needs to be able to shit and eat and do these sorts of things and fuck and all that. Right. Uh, but like to reduce the fullness of the, of the human being to its most basic drives is a form of, of just gross reductionism. And I think that's a move that the dark Renaissance makes that metamodernism says, no, all those things are there. We can't deny them when we shouldn't. We need to integrate them. But we can also view those within a broader holistic context of, yeah, I'm also a thinking animal and a loving animal and a creative animal and like all these other things. And uh, we don't need to reduce it that way. So mm. that's another way of thinking about this that relates to meta memes. And I mean, I guess yeah, the follow to that before Daniel it. speaks is just that history, as I understand it, does not seem to corroborate with the developmental narrative. The 20th century is more bloody than any other century. Furthermore, let me let me let me sort of add something to that. Like, if there is a developmental arc for humanity, the current formulation of metamodernity doesn't grasp it, and it doesn't grasp its last stuff. It's still a very green grassland, if I understand correctly. Some of those terminologies from integral theory. Let's not like. To transition to let's let's put it this way, developmental stages unfold dialectically from one to the other, and there are sort of negations that happen between them as they develop through history, individually and through history. So if there is a developmental sort of cadence, it is not a stacking, it is not a hierarchy, but it is a, a continual negation which promotes unfolding. And so this, if there is any metamodern moment, it, it's this, which is the calling for a clarity of vision if we are to be creators and designers of the next um, whatever, 
And today that means channeling the machinic unconscious. This is the real caring act. The real caring act is daring to contemplate sort of the, the full depth of it, because then we are committed to the one ethical true duty of any creator and designer, which is to have a clear view of a situation as possible. Metamodernity and Game B have absolutely no clear view of that, as far as I see it. Um, you know, the system adapts to the creator, not the creator to the system. So developmental stages, the master says, I am the developmental, the, the maximum developmental stage. And it, the master, the, the creator does not hear, oh, but this reveals a regression to a Faustian stage or to a feudal stage or to the most primary stage. The creator doesn't hear this and think, oh shit, then I should think twice. No, the creator thinks I'm, an, I'm the master. And if I'm the master, I need to be able to risk contemplating the full depth and full scope of the situation as an ethical duty, because that is what true caring means. And I argue that Game B and Metamoderns don't care enough, because if they would care enough, they would contemplate this depth truly. And that clarity teaches us that war, sex, death, and other horsemen of this apocalypse that sound so mean and scary, they are the true mouths of the unconscious, the true ethical duty, the caring duty is to hear them. And then we'll be able to do something deep like ontological design, because only after we understand how AI is going to efface the face of man, will, be, will we be able to either design or be designed back. And then all of this other chatter around developmental stages will sound like what it is, in my view, which is dithering as Rome burns. There's only one true ethical duty, the, the duty of caring, clear view of the situation or or not, and and I know I'm repeating myself, but but that that clear view of the situation for me means um, risking true creativity um, with with a big R. Um, and and I, by this, I Brandon, please don't hear it as heroic destruction. Don't hear it as nihilism. Don't hear it as banging the drums of war. I'm a peaceful guy. I care about people. I care so much. In fact, that I dare hear these these things. I know when I you're laughing and I'm going to stop now. I love you, Daniel, man. Well, I would also just say, too, I think this also reveals something really helpful and important, which is that um, there, there are different, um, I don't know what the word, word would be, paradigms or lenses or frameworks that I think this broad, general, liminal web discourse the different communities are, are using different paradigms and frameworks through which to articulate their responses, right? And so, you know, whether it's metamodernism, um, at least if, I guess what you'd call the Nordic branch or political metamodernism, it very much does look at things through a developmental lens. And so in order to, I think, understand it fully, because a lot of what you said, those things are dealt with and considered and given their due course within that framework, right? So then it's sort of like, it just requires a kind of gaining familiarity with that particular framework and how it deals with those problems. Um, and so I think that that's just a, a, a something that we should keep in mind is that, yeah, I think that if you wanted to kind of think in terms of lineages and heritages and frameworks and stuff, uh, the kind of metamodernism, certainly as it's espoused by, by Hanzi, is a developmentally framed one. I think the dark Renaissance, right, is a lot more inf informed by Nietzschean existentialist philosophy mm -hmm. and psychoanalytical uh, frameworks, right? And so 
you know, but, like here's to more conversation between those two, but right, they're also right, like, right, there, right. there's a lot, there's a lot that right. also kind of separates those discourses. Sorry, go on. I, I'm not either or really, uh, I'm, I'm me, if anything, uh, and not enough. Uh, and, and secondly, um, tool sets over frameworks. My point, and I know you're sort of a creator and and, and creative, um, and I'm like not a philosopher, but I try to find a way through which creation happens by right? design, which is what I do, but also like how can how does creation come about? And it's really about tool sets, in my view. Um, it's about doings, um, and 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 often I just find that the when you, when you encumber a project too much, say you're doing a website or you're doing an experience or you're doing a house or whatever you're doing, say like the more, sometimes too much framework is encumbering and sometimes you need to risk breaking those frameworks. And by this, I do allude to a certain heaviness of frameworks on, on, on some sides on the game B and metamodernist side, but also not heavy enough on the other ones because such as, sort of the lessons of Hegel and psychoanalysis, uh, just because I feel like those lend themselves more to an applied craft of values and value craft or, you know, the value design as the discipline that is going to, you know, there's graphic design, there's experience design, and then we'll have value design. And value design is going to be really mm, toolkit based. It's about what you can do, not what, but not what about you want to do. This is like such a big distinction. Can you do, can we do, Brennan, all these things that, that we propose ourselves to do when we speak through, through these game B and metamodern values? And I argue, no. Why? Because we are not able, and here, Owen, let me know what you think, not only to align with the forces of the unconscious, but to align with the forces of the unconscious as they manifest through capital and through uh, geopolitics and war. Meaning, well, they do. Geopolitics does, capital does, there is movement, there is doing there. And so are we being truly ethical, sticking to our frameworks and risking passivity, risking uselessness? Or should we consider tool sets that dare flirt with dystopia, that dare glue yourself a little bit closer to capital, that dares being um, morally polysemic, that dare sacrificing your own morals for the sake of power and activity. And I think that that's kind of the, the real dialectical move that, uh, that, that transforms you from a, towards a true creative in a way. Dare kill your idols. Do we dare do that? For, for what sake? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves and our morals for, for an objective of creativity? Um, because what that implies then is that that creativity will be powerful, but only once we stand in negativity. And that's sort of the lesson of affirmative nihilism for me, which is, you know, how do I, how do I exemplify this? Um, it is the, the intellectual gesture of, of looking at something like, I don't want to say this. Well, let's put it this way. It's finding beauty in everything even in the process of our own self-dissolution and self-negation, negation of what we even believe in. And maybe that's the dialectical shift that we need in order to transit to, to, to other developmental stages and to real creativity. 
because otherwise it feels like it's so much like affirm, 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 defend this identity, defend this turf. I mean, nobody cares really. Capitalism doesn't care. War doesn't care. So what are we? What are we really doing then? Uh, especially in the face of AI and and the great machine and conscious. So those are my last two cents. I'll I'll stop being obnoxiously uh, death driven for a little bit. Um, I well I. I appreciate your perspectives and thoughts and I do share it. I think you raise a really good point. I think a crucial one actually, which is um, we need to act, right? We need to do things. And uh, I think what, what, what I'm seeing come through that, that I can hundred percent support and get behind and resonate with is um, uh, there's a danger in a couple things here. One is, is, is dithering kind of over-reflective theorizing uh, and, and sort of, the committeeization of solving problems when we need bold action, we need transformative uh, change that is necessarily destructive as well as constructive. And we also can't sort of allow the desire to uh, stand on the sort of moral high ground of affirming everything um, and just saying all the nice things and, and in the process, not owning up to the dark realities, because I think this is a probably the core thought that I most emphatically agree with about the critique is that, yes, if we try to build a system based on this sort of pie in the sky idealism, it's not only going to collapse, but it's going to reify in the problems and create many more. I think Actually, a lot of the postmodern relativism is a good example of this sort of thing. If you've ever been in any context where you're trying to solve a problem or or deal with something and you've got to like basically go through each individual person and say, how does this affect you? What are you feeling? And, you know, like, oh, I'm offended that you use this word. And right. It just it all goes to chaos and, and nothing gets done. I think that is actually very core to the the temperamental metamodern shift is to acknowledge that and realize that action is needed and we can't sort of do this sort of postmodern dithering that's care about how everyone's feelings and that sort of thing. So yes, we do need to risk and we do need to risk uh, boldly. I would say too, for my part, this isn't something that does come up so much in metamodern circles, but it comes up in my work a lot is the role of Faust. Um, and I think that a lot of what you're saying really, um, reverberates for me around the Faustian figure, which is in my mind also the, the grand inquisitor, right? Now, when you're talking about creating new values and when you're talking about mythopoeia and myth construction, um, you better be serious about this sort of thinking, right? Um, because we need to consider, and some of this has come up in the conversations that I've had with like Layman Pascal and John Vervecchia around this sort of stuff, but it's like, there's a dark side. Now, do we ignore it? Well, we ignore it to our peril. <clears throat> do we embrace it? That's a lot more questionable, right? So the Faustian figure who makes the bargain of, I'm going to do the thing by sacrificing maybe a certain ideal in order to get, you know, the, the ends justify the means basically, right? The Grand Inquisitor is able to create a world for people who are, he gives them bread, he gives them miracle, right? He, he, he gives them, he fulfills human desires in a way that, you know, the, the Christ who shows up just never was willing to do because, right. It's like that figure needs to be reckoned with. I think it's uh, the end of, uh, uh, speaking of decadence actually, and, and Jacques Barzan is, you know, he wrote uh, from dawn to decadence and uh, work exploring this topic of Western decadence for the past 500 years culture. He ends with the, the thought, very, I think, pregnant thought of basically, I've, 
paraphrasing it, it's to the effect of whoever is going to be thinking about the problems of the future needs to grapple with the figure of the Grand Inquisitor. Um, because what the Grand Inquisitor or the Faust figure is able to do is, is change things, right? Is, is implement change, is do things by, by, by employing power, right? And of course, power is both the boogeyman and also that desire, you know, the postmodern sort of left, right? Everything that is sort of critiqued is, oh, that's a power play or that's a power dynamic or that's a power structure, right? There's a sense that we need to destroy all this, but actually so much of the time it's just, no, we want that, right? And I think Nietzsche nailed that psychological dynamic better than anyone. Um, so power is problematic, obviously, but it's also necessary for the implementation of anything. I mean, a will to power, a will to institute your ideals and visions in the world. If you don't have the power, then you can't change the world, right? So we need the power. And people are also wary of it. And I think they're, they're justly wary. I think that's part of the critique that should be carried over from postmodernism is that we realize, oh, wow, the way that people have utilized power, that's been pretty fucked up for a long time. Let's really interrogate that, right? <clears throat> But once you start interrogating it, you also start to come to realize certain inevitabilities potentially about how it gets implemented. And I think that what, to the degree that I can agree with some of the stuff that you're talking about, I do think that there need to be some folks who just own it and say, you know what? Yes, we need to implement change. And if that means instituting a new mythological framework into the world to assert a new grand narrative of uh, a new meta narrative that will help revitalize a, a future renaissance, such as Nietzsche and Wagner were excited to do, then we need to we need to, to do it. Now, here's the thing, and if I can just tie this all back up, and this is a great way to kind of maybe start to uh, wrap up this conversation. This is, the, this is the challenge of Wagner and Nietzsche, okay? What Nietzsche did was he ran away to the mountains. He eschewed power. What Wagner did was played into it drummed it up, played the press, made a whole spectacle of himself, just reveled in the movement. He made a real thing. Wagner made a movement. He created some of the most incredible works of art ever. He, through just sheer will and grit and force, he was able to have this whole music festival and structure erected in Bayreuth and this whole, this whole thing that would just, you know, reverberate for, for centuries, right? Wagner did the thing in a way that he was the Faust. Nietzsche broke with Wagner I would argue, because he wasn't willing to do that. He saw it as beneath him, right? He wanted to maintain his ideals and his integrity and didn't want to muddy things up in the swampy air, you know, of, of all this cultural nonsense. So that's the question, right? Is like, who's had a greater influence now, you know, uh, that's sort of the, yeah, I would just throw that out there. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that these things aren't crucial. I think that they actually really are brilliant and crucial questions, and I'm glad people are considering them. I do think more metamodernists should be considering them. I know it's in Hansi's work to some degree. He's very, and I highly encourage uh, if you haven't read his work, uh, Listening Society, especially. Um, but yes, it needs to be talked about more in the metamodern community. And as far as how much this stuff comes up in the game B community, I actually don't really even know because I'm, again, more of a, an observer than a participant. Um, I just sort of a, a, an admirer and a kin. Um, but yes, so that'd be my, my take on some of that. That's a great point, man. I think, uh, yeah, and this is where I want to like make some self-critique and then pass it to Owen because um, uh, the only thing that like wants to burst out of me uh, in a very pathic way, and then I'm not going to sort of pitch my own work now, but like is the idea that we are uh, terrified of power 
we should be wary of it. We we should deconstruct it, but we're also terrified of having it. We're not even able to contemplate, like, if you would have it, would you be good? Absolutely not. Can you handle that? <clears throat> it's fucked up. And so it's like this idea of, of Mephistopheles, right? The, the ship invented the shipwreck. What are you going to do if you have uh, all the power of the world in your hand? Well, I don't know. I can't promise anything. And um, so, you know, this value tantra design priesthood that will hopefully somehow figure out the issues of the future if it will if if it if it's not terrified of power to go to the right places to fetch that power um then it's going to reckon with its own psychological issues with its own psychoanalytical sex drives and all of that stuff this is where owen uh, clearly sort of you know tends to put a leash on me in many ways because truly there's a fascination and truly there's a there's but but there's a point to it as well but um It could very well be the case that, you know, if if you, it's like we see in Silicon Valley, they have all the power. What do they do? Well, wow, another dictatorship somewhere else. What do humans do? That's what we do. Same, you know, new technology, same problems uh, somewhere else. So that's, that's another level of things that we can see pretty much everywhere, right? Can't we see, you know, when I saw in the Game B video, like the little parasite, I was like, oh, wow, there it is. You can call it a parasite. Tomorrow, call it uh, insert group name here. So it's this type of thinking that is, is uh, we need to acknowledge our relationship to power. And if anything, I want to sort of point towards that also in light of the urgency, but also in light of the creative possibilities, uh, which come through that negativity. And that's sort of the, how do I put it? The dark appeal of it. You know, we like, we like naughty things. We like inky things. We like destructive things too. It's uh, it's it's also a component of it. So Owen, let me kick it to you, man. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I I'll say is that to the extent that I can call myself an artist, it as I think I said at the start, I feel drawn to whatever is going on in the dark Renaissance space in a way that I'm not drawn to the meta modern world, and. It's that same draw that, say, I find in Wagner, in Nietzsche. And if I look at what these guys are trying to wrestle with, as I've said multiple times, it's the spirit of tragedy, which is something to do with like the impossibility of being. So whether it's Zarathustra, who is constantly caught between going up on the mountain because he can't handle people, but then coming down into the crowd because he's like, I've got to fucking share them, share with them. But now he's like, no, I can't fucking handle them. Or then Wagner's operas, I guess, where whether it's kind of romances that end in tragedy or where it's even, I forget if it's Tannhauser or Parsifal, but even where it kind of ends with the Christian retribution, there's this battle of man with this pagan spirit. That's, there's this deep kind of battle. And that is what, I want to explore. That's what I think needs to be explored in art. And the metamodern sensibility with being the nice guys, being the positive guys, and also the metamodern sensibility with kind of this ironic sincerity feels like a way of dancing around this impossible core of the human experience that it's kind of afraid to go there or maybe it'll go there with comedy but it won't go with the weight of tragedy and so it's kind of neutered artistically yeah yeah 
I just feel drawn to, to drop in the following. It's, <clears throat> it is as if the manifestations of the death drive not being acknowledged head on manifest themselves laterally. Oh, we need to purge ourselves of such parasitical bad habits. Almost aesthetic, almost Victorian Christian in a way. So such an acknowledged death drive. No, we, 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 there's another type of enjoyment that is necessary. Sort of this, this looking at this compulsive repetition of the same, of, of the, you know, it's not the pleasure principle. It's, it's something else. It's this movement that moves on its own that at the micro scale is sex is, 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 is unacknowledged ink is an unacknowledged mental vices at the collective scale. It's technology, death, war, it's inexorable. And the well, I, mean, I don't think the, the great artist is supposed to be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm reminded of like Nietzsche's passage where in the birth of tragedy, where he's talking about the root of, this art form being an elegy where the poet essentially sings a song of personal loss and lament, but really what speaks through them is the weight of the world and itself. And I know Nietzsche then went on to actually go, Oh no, in birth of tragedy, I was being too depressing. I was too, uh, too influenced by Wagnerism. We need something more uplifting, but I actually, and this is my heavy metal spirit, right? But I totally resonate with that. It's like, it's that, the poet speaks and inv invokes a particular individual whose struggles, whose suffering come to represent the kind of the impossibilities and the conflicts at the core of reality itself. I have so many thoughts and I love it. It's so rich. I, 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 I feel like it would be really good to, to have another hour or two to, to dig into some of this stuff. Cause I feel like there's a lot there and I really want to draw out some of this nuance. Cause I think whatever, all, all that you're saying, I really do resonate with um, to try to pluck one thought out of this, you know, maelstrom, I would just say, <clears throat> um, I think that it is, yes. <laughs> How do I say this? In some ways, this relates to that pre-trans things I was talking about earlier, but in, in, it's really just, there's always the danger of, 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 of simplifying based on a kind of surface impression of something. And I think I was guilty of this as well. And I think that there might be mutual misunderstanding between the dark Renaissance and the metamodernists on this point, right? Um, oh, one of the things maybe to frame this uh, is, uh, I was just watching the movie I Heart Huckabees. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, it's actually culturally aesthetically it's a very meta modern movie but also content wise it very much is and um basically there's this you know there's this uh couple who present this sort of philosophy that you know all is one and everything is really united and blah 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 and then this guy kind of gets drawn into that but then he finds this other philosopher and she's like a dark existentialist you know oh life is suffering and you know we must own the suffering and there is no purpose and this sort of thing and uh then he gets really drawn into that and then finally, you know, they're sort of going back and forth between each other. And uh, this one of the culminating realizations of the main character towards the end is he's like, wait a second, do you guys work with each other? Because like, what you're saying is, you know, that life is suffering and all that's true and it's real, but then like, but what you're saying is, all anyway, so his point ultimately is that you need a synthesis of these two things um, and that either of them in their, in their simplistic surface forms are going to be too simplistic and too surface. Um, I would say that there's a rabbit hole 
a kind of dialectical one that you can go down where there's a continual transformation or the potential transformation of tragedy to comedy to tragedy to comedy. Um, I think that there's a heroism that is no less noble and bold and creative than the one that I think you're exploring and espousing of digging into the darkness and not flinchingly turning away, but just owning it and exploring it, et cetera. I think that there's a form of heroism that can also do, have done that and be on the other side of that. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't interrogate the darkness and explore it and go through it, right? And this is, again, I think why I'm attracted to metamodernism is it's ostensibly a, a form of idealism after nihilism, right? To find, and in my work specifically, it's not just art, it's actual spirituality as well. So how do you find spirituality? How do you find meaning and all these sorts of things after nihilism? And my point here would just be, I think that everything that you're talking about can be a part of a journey towards, um, that leads to a point where you are still affirming hope, ideals, change, let's make the world better, all these things. Not because you haven't done any of this stuff, but because you have, right? But, but you're, you're post-tragic, I guess, would be the sense of it, right? Um, I've been very fascinated in the, the work that I'm working on now is highly influenced by this sort of a thing of, and this is its own rabbit hole, but, but the relationship of Virgil to Dante, you know, Virgil is a tragic poet and the Aeneid is just in some ways the tragic poem par excellence. And it deals with all this stuff. It's heroic and noble and, and the, the weight of the world and it's incommensurable, intractable uh, confusions and, 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 and kind of terrors and sufferings. And, and it, it's, what's the word? It's, um, it's, it's an incomprehensible element. And I think that, of course, that Nietzsche is also speaking to all that with his notion of the Dionysian, et cetera. And then, and that's sort of the story, right? It's sort of like all these terrible things happen and really all you can do is just your best and do your duty and be Aeneas, be pious Aeneas and go found a, a, a city and, you know, the gods are going to kill you and everything. But now then you get someone like Dante, whose work is actually called the comedy who picks up Virgil, who has Virgil walk him through the underworld and takes him to a new place. And it's not because Dante didn't get tragedy. He got tragedy. And at many points when he's in his journey in the underworld, he faints and he, he's, he succumbs to, you know, the tragedy of it. But there's a world that he paints that is also in the end, affirmative and beautiful and, and divine. And, uh, and it's a comedy. Um, and that's the only sense that the, that, that, that the title can have when you think about it, um, ultimately, is that there's sort of, is there a happy ending or is there a, a tragic, sad ending? And um, I think that these can be explored um, both naively and also by going through the depths of them and coming out into these other sides. And I think that it sounds to me that both of these movements, metamodernism, dark renaissance, et cetera, are doing these things, but maybe focusing or emphasizing one side of that. Maybe there's an emphasis of the tragic in, in what you're talking about, whereas I tend to emphasize the comic. But it doesn't negate the tragic or the comic. It's just saying, where do we land? Uh, so mm -hmm. in lieu of time, that might be one last thought to throw into the mix. But I do want to do some archaeological excavation a little bit to try to 
go through all this and kind of say, well, you know, where does this all lead? And, and is there maybe a pro or a con for landing on one side versus the other? Or is it the dialectical, you know, back and forth between them two eternally yes. that is the thing? Yeah. It's a rhetorical question. Like, how can you be sure that you'll come out on the end? Much less a nice guy. I'd say um, here's for me where some of the existentialist kicks in. But for me, um, so I do think Nietzsche is a, a prophet. I also think Kierkegaard's a prophet. In fact, I think they're the sort of two prophets of, of, our, of our times. And here for me, I do a, neat, a kind of Kierkegaardian move um, because you choose where to end up, I think. Um, and you can only do that after you're post-tragic, right? You know, I think there's a, there's a, a willful affirmation you're going to say all right i've been doing this tragic thing for a long time you know i've been i've been really dredging up into the darkness and yeah i, I think i get that but what's it getting me and where am i going and what is what's the future that's based on any of this etc right um and i think that then something can click in where you say maybe that's not enough maybe and here's the thing maybe and actually this is really one of the last core points i did want to talk about it because it really is it's really crucial i think it's the way my conception of a lot of this stuff plays out not necessarily others there's a way of thinking about all this stuff right that is sort of like imagine you go to the depths of it all and you are in the nihilism and you're there and you're sitting with it all and you're there sitting with all the darkness and stuff right um if you affirm hey, we need some myths. It's, it's going one step further than Nietzsche does, right? Nietzsche, for all of his critique of truth, and, you know, he, you know, he says, like, it's almost like the, the test of a character, how much, how much truth they will allow themselves, right? Because the truth is so, so, right, in the whole Apollonian Dionysian thing, we use the Apollonian cover to kind of veil us from this Dionysian terror, right? And his mark of sort of a, a, a magnanimous great soul is how much truth can they let in, right? Now you can go one step deeper than that and say, Nietzsche's still making truth and a transcendent ideal. Why? And I have a thing about this, about spirituality through nihilism. There is a way in which you can do this movement of, of a transition a flip to, well, why not affirm the beautiful? Why not affirm the, the simple, the mythic, the, the, the sort of, you know, golden view of things? Because it's it, totally passive. But see, to even suggest like a, a gradient of value there is sort of like, well, why? And on what basis, right? And then it's like- it's a fantasy, pure fantasy, pure storytelling. But 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 my point is, it's like that's presuming that fantasy is bad and and this truth thing is good. But now we have an ideal. We have an ascetic ideal that we're going to sacrifice our happiness for. And that but sounds fails, to me a lot. It fails on this self-proposed objective of creating a myth that will sustain the whole world. It fails rotundly, uh, if that's a word, at that goal. But then then how do we answer the Grand Inquisitor? Because isn't that what the Grand Inquisitor is doing? I haven't gone deep enough. Like uh, mm. my reply to you would be it's a sort of premature avoidance of the void mm. um, to to come out of it midway and say oh why not just be good um stay with the dying like what if we die midway fuck maybe that's the whole point and maybe we have to be we have to be uh, uh comedic and tragic in hell in hell uh, but if you if you deconstruct the whole thing sorry go on i don't mean to interrupt 
maybe trying to sort of round this up is, is that while in hell, that's where we have to, my point is, is against a fantasy of prematurely coming out with, with a myth because myths must stand the test of social reality. Uh, and the only myths that stand social reality are those forged in hell. Um, with, with, and so because we have not seen any, uh, that means that we haven't gone to hell enough, uh, psychologically, personally, etc. And any claim that to merely want the good is going to do anything, it's kind of a fairy tale. It's kind of a useless myth. It's kind of a myth that is castrated because it hasn't had that sort of ability to stand in the wood. That would be my my claim to it, right? It's we're still in hell. We haven't gone to hell deep enough, man. And, and I say this not gleefully, but as a society, as people who think in these groups, as, as creators, as whatever we are, uh, there's only one way and that's down. And the more, the better, the faster we accept that, the faster we'll be able to formulate comedic, tragic things that come out the other side. But um, let's not be too premature to think of white knights and resurrection fantasies. Let's not be too, too fast. Yeah, I hear that. And I, I, I'll just end on a final thought, which is, you know, how would we ever know we had gone through the other side, which is maybe the question you'd already asked, right? How, do, how would we ever know we'd, we'd suffered enough, we'd gone to hell enough? When does the white knight myth ever seem like a good idea what, when you're in hell, right? It's like, that's why I think you need to kind of Kierkegaardian leap at that point, because you have to realize that there's nothing external that will make that decision for you. It has to come from within. You have to, you have to do a metanoia and be like, ah, I'm in hell, man. What, what the hell is this about? Um, and, uh, but, but I, I do agree with your point though, too. You can't have a sort of a, yes, a, a premature night, I guess is a pre prepubescent thing. Um, but, um, but I, at two hours, I have to unfortunately depart um, yeah, because I, I got a role. But again, I would really love to continue this conversation or various elements of it in another context if you guys want to pick it up at some point. Absolutely, man. I think we should just book another couple of hours in because I feel like we haven't finished this conversation. I've got more I want to say. Yeah. Um, um, where can people find you if they want to check out your stuff? Uh, yeah. So my name is Brendan Graham Dempsey and conveniently you can go to BrendanGrahamDempsey.com. Uh, so uh, yeah. And that has sort of a description of um, my, my writing work. Um, and I'm also uh, my main kind of interactive element is, is on Facebook at the moment. Uh, so um, people can, can find me there and stuff. So yeah. Um, but I, I do also want to say thank you so much. This has been great. I had a great time. And, and these are the sorts of conversations that I really enjoy. And I'm really glad I got a better sense of a lot of the ideas that are floating around the dark renaissance. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to being able to, to dig more in and uh, appreciate you guys and your, and your minds. So thank you for this opportunity. We're going to convert you to our weird sex tech. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I knew Thanks it. For the chat, man. All right, guys, take care. All right. Bye -bye. Adios. Bye-bye.